Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. My guest today is Michael Cruz. Michael is currently Associate Professor of English and Chair of English and Communication Studies at Regents University. He earned his PhD from Baylor and his BA and MA from University of Texas, El Paso. And his book, Books Are Made Out of Books, A Guide to Cormac McCarthy's Literary Influences, was published by University of Texas Press in 2017. He also has a chapter in Stephen Fry's Cormac McCarthy in Context, published by University of Cambridge Press. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. So we'll start the way we always do. Why don't you tell us how you came to discover Cormac McCarthy? Well, let's see. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. And so I started hearing that name just kind of in the air from time to time. The, the first time I actually um, I saw Cormac McCarthy once before I had oh, ever wow. had a word. I was, um, I was sitting in a village inn restaurant with um, my girlfriend at the time and he was sitting at a table about two tables over <laughs> uh, by himself, having breakfast, drinking coffee and uh, reading a, a biography of Winston Churchill. That's what I remember. And, you know, because, uh, you know, I had been so close to this <laughs> writer, physically close, I thought I should read some of his books. And so uh, I started with um, All the Pretty Horses and, you know, it was just hooked instantly. Uh, you know, I, I knew this was for me. <laughs> I was so... Uh, floored by it that I, you know, decided to read some other things. I read Sutri, which I, I think is probably my favorite, you know, uh, after, after reading that one, I thought, yeah, this is, this is the guy, this is my guy. <laughs> and uh, so that was a long time ago. That was probably about 1996 and I've been hooked ever since. And you eventually ended up doing your PhD work on McCarthy, right? I did. Yeah. So your primary focus. Yeah, that was my primary focus. I was at, um, I was at Baylor which is um, just right down the road from San Marcos, you know, uh, I guess a couple hours drive. And so um, it was easy for me to get down there and, and go through the archives. And at first it was just really personal interest. It wasn't so much, um, I didn't really have a, a scholarly uh, intention at that point. And so I just started uh, poking around in those boxes. I think it's about 97 boxes of material, wow. looking at the drafts, the marginalia and you know, I almost the whole time I was at Baylor, I was making these little forays down to San Marcos. And I realized at some point I, I started taking notes on every reference to another writer or thinker or artist that I could find. And I realized at some point I had this, this very large list of names and I hadn't, I hadn't planned to do a dissertation and then eventually a book about it. But I realized at some point there's, there's a book here. And, um, you know, I think I was interested in that, that question of McCarthy's influences because he himself is so reticent about right. discussing those things. You know, um, you know, uh, famously, he'll talk to you about about physics, all, you know, golf to blue in the face, you know, but uh, he, he doesn't want to really talk about literature. He doesn't want to talk about his own books, doesn't want to talk about writers. And so, uh, you know, it's he's, he's reticent about that. And so what I what I realized going through the archives and jotting down all these names that, you know, McCarthy, he can pretend all he wants that he's just this kind of I, I read science. I don't really 
I don't really mess around with with uh, artists. It's really not true. You know, he's a very um, he's a very literary writer. He's a very well-read man. Um, his uh, his reading is is wide. That's one of the things that stood out to me is, is simply just how how wide his reading is. You know, um, everything from from science to you know, na- nature writing is, is one in particular that he clearly gravitates towards. Um, philosophy uh, very heavily invested in philosophy, but also very literary interests. You know, and so. When I started seeing, you know, we all we all sort of knew about Melville and Faulkner, but you know, I started seeing Flaubert, for instance. Mm. Uh, you know, this is this is a guy who's very well read and uh, certainly has not neglected the literary canon at all. In fact, this leads us to my first question, really, which was the title of your book is, or I should say, your work is "Books Are Made Out of Books: A Guide to Cormac McCarthy's Literary Influences." Where does that? Uh, What's the origin of that of your book's title? Yeah, that came from a from an interview, one of the few lengthy interviews that he's granted in his career. The New York Times is where that appeared, and he was asked about influences, and, and that was his response. He said, uh, "I think he said the ugly truth is that books are made out of books." You know. <laughs> yes. I guess it's an ugly enough truth to him that he he tries to uh, you know hide his tracks. <laughs> But, you know, the, the fascinating thing about the archives is he leaves this track. And maybe when he was working on these manuscripts, he, he didn't imagine some, some guy like me pouring through them with uh, looking for every jot and tittle in the margin. But, you know, he does. He, he leaves a, a track, you know. Um, and, you know, he actually, important enough to him to sort of log uh, in his notes and in, in his marginalia where some of the ideas that he was incorporating into his work came right. from. Well, and you always wonder about these writers who have, I don't know if we'd call it foresight, if we'd call it fortunate hubris, if we'd call it a uh, hoarder's mentality, <laughs> but that they save all their notes, all their letters, all their drafts. Many writers I know, even before the age of Microsoft Word and Apple, I think probably threw a lot of stuff away and didn't hold on to things. So I, I do think there are certain writers who are hopeful there'll be a time when people down the line are interested in writing about them. And that's why they save everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting in McCarthy's case because he spent so many years writing books that very few people were reading, you know? Yes. It took him a long time to find a large reading public. And the fact that he was keeping all this stuff during those years when uh, he wasn't really on the, the radar, I think indicates a personal faith in the longevity of the work that he was, mm. he was producing, you know? So I, I, I find that interesting too, that he, he kept it. And um, it was certainly a, a lucrative move for him to hang on to that stuff. Well, in the way he writes where he'll write some things that he doesn't use right away, but eventually he rewrites and rewrites and it'll show up here, but then something he writes in another context or circumstance may show up in some other work. Yeah, And you really do have to save everything, I guess, not just nowadays in computer files, but other places to have access to it, especially if you're someone who doesn't particularly seem to enjoy how much things are computerized. I know for a very long time, he held on to an old typewriter. Yeah, yeah.
so you've, you've told us a bit about how you came to write the book. Well, let me, let me back up here. One of the things when we talk about him leaving all the trails and the scribbles, there's some of his books where there are many allusions as well. Sutry, yeah. it seems to me that Sutry, every third or fourth page yeah. is filled with delusions. And I've written on myself on Walker Percy and E.E. Uh, e. Cummings and, and Elliot and how they appear throughout Sutry. And I know a lot of people have done work with Joyce and you, you found a virtual gold mine in Sutry, as I recall in your book. It is, it is gold mine. Yeah. The, um, the, the chapters on Sutri and Blood Meridian are by far the, the largest chapters uh, in the book. And that's where I found most of these references, you know. And of course, he was working on both of those at the same time. Right. They overlap. So um, that was the period in his own writing career where, you know, the, that trail, you know, really becomes most evident. You know, he leaves the most tracks. So I know that he started Sutri more or less contemporaneously with the orchard keeper. Yeah. And he worked on those side by side. Do we know when he starts writing blood Meridian? Is it before he moves to Texas? Um, I, I think it is before he moved to Texas. I, I think around 74 or 75 is when he started working on it. And you can see in the notes for such every once in a while, you'll see the Western. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's how he was referring to it in his own notes, the West. So, you know, while he was in the last stages of Sutri, working on Sutri, he had this other project. And so it's interesting to find that uh, some of the names that show up in the notes for Sutri are just as important for you know, mm. Blood Meridian. You know, so, for instance, um, it became clear to me as I was going through all these boxes that Flaubert's strange little book, The Temptation of St. Anthony, was uh, a very important book to Cormac McCarthy. And uh, it's a a book that explores the the variety of of theological and philosophical traditions, not only in the West, but uh, in the East as well, and delves deeply into Gnostic cosmology and metaphysics. And, uh, you know, this is a book that was very much on his mind. And I saw you know, the influence of that, that book in both Sutri and in Blood Meridian. So there you have this, you know, this intersection between McCarthy's own personal reading interests at that time uh, and the, the two books that he was working on simultaneously. And, you know, there's a, the, the book is about uh, a desert saint, uh, a saint who has gone, who has left society um, and adopted an ascetic lifestyle in the desert. Huh. And, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, Sutri is a little bit like that. You know, he's sure. a character who has tried to leave society behind and adopt a lifestyle, certainly not an ascetic lifestyle, but he's, he's adopted a, a way of life that is a deliberate rejection of the world that he grew up in. Sure. The world represented by, you know, his, his father in particular. And and then there are there are moments in Sutri, for instance, his sort of vision quest in the mountains, mm-hmm. where you know he's he's clearly a spiritual quester, mm-hmm. much like the desert saint. Um, and then uh, you know you find the, the same thing in in Blood Meridian, this idea of desert wandering as um, a, as spiritual pilgrimage, or the de- the experience of the desert as a a, a, sp- a spiritual geography. Sure. 
And so in both of those books, you can see his interest in Flaubert and in that particular book, The Temptation of St. Anthony. Right. It shows up in both of them, you know. And even the Flaubert title makes reference to the biblical origins. Sure. Yeah. With the 40 days in the wilderness and yep. before that, 40 years in the wilderness. So yep. Yep. very interesting. So you've done all this work at the archives, the Whitliff Collection at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. You gave us a little bit of information about it. Can you just tell us about it and how it works and, and generally what archives are for authors? All of my academics on this, I think, know a good bit about such things, but I think there are a lot of people listening who are not academics. So Yeah, well, um, many university libraries will house special collections um, in which they they gather together the, the, the papers of writers, and um, those can involve notes, correspondence, uh, manuscripts, uh, what have you. Uh, often they will pay large sums of money to acquire these things, and that is the case with McCarthy's papers. Was, uh, I forget the exact going price, but it was, mm. it was a pretty penny. And, um, you know, you can visit the archives, but there are special circumstances involved. Uh, you can't just check things out. You um, In San Marcos, you can look at one box at a time. Uh, there's always somebody in the room with you to make sure you don't, you know, shove some papers into your briefcase mm. and then uh, take off. You know, there are specific uh, rules about, you know, how you, about making copies, for instance. Right. You know, there's, there's all kinds of special rules involved to protect the the material uh, due to its particular value. Yeah. In uh, in San Marcos, there are, I, I think it's 97 boxes. My memory may be off a little bit there, but something like 97 boxes. And what you find in the McCarthy archives are correspondence, um, usually between McCarthy and his um, editor or copy editor. You will find notes sometimes in a chaotic <laughs> kind of chaotic <laughs> form um, often those notes just take the form of, of lists um, sometimes you'll find you know little bits of dialogue or phrases and you'll you'll recognize it and say oh yeah yeah that's that's in Suntry and um, so you can see McCarthy's playing around with ideas playing around with um, with dialogue characters voices and you will also find um, copy editing notes where you'll see McCarthy making notes um, that connect to a page in the manuscript. And quite often um, he's responding to a, an editor's query or recommendation. Sometimes it can be really mundane. It can be about punctuation or that sort of thing. Obviously McCarthy is kind of a maddening writer for a copy editor to work with because he has his own very idiosyncratic ideas. Yes. <laughs> And he doesn't uh, he doesn't bend easily um, to to pressure, but you find that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, you find early drafts, and in some ways, those those are the most exciting uh, parts of the collection, the early drafts. And that's because, in some cases, the drafts are different. In some cases, they contain uh, excised material that was later excised from the published work. In Sutri, for instance, um, there's quite a bit of material that never made it in mm. the published novel. You know, whole episodes. Uh, there's one that that involves um, 
a raucous cockfight. <laughs> Uh, and and features characters who actually don't appear in the published novel. So it's uh, it's interesting to see that kind of stuff, to see what McCarthy left out. Um, sometimes you can see pretty clearly why he left it out. Other times you think, that's pretty good. Why, <laughs> why isn't that in there? So, you know, those drafts are, are fascinating for that reason. Um, some of the, in some cases, there's not a lot of difference between the drafts you find in the archives and the published novel. But in the case of Sutri and Blood Meridian, you do find differences that are interesting. Sometimes you can find places uh, where he's rewritten the same scene over and over and over again. Ah. You know, and, and that's interesting because then you, you realize this, is, this was important. This right. is when he really wanted to get right and was unhappy with, with the way it was, was going. And so you find that. And then you find the margin notes, the marginal notes. Um, which is where I was usually hunting for those references to other writers, you know. So you'll find a reference to, say, Camus or Hawthorne, mm. you know, just up in the corner or off to the, the left-hand side, you know. And that, that was the, the trail that I was looking for in my own research. And, um, and then, you know, you find also um, later drafts that are less interesting because – they've already reached the point right. where they're pretty close to publication. Pretty close. So let me ask you then a kind of two, well, two questions. I started to say two part questions, really two distinct questions. What have been your biggest surprises? The things that you said, Oh, wow. And it sounds like the, the Flaubert novel might be one of them. Yeah. And connected to that, the most interesting thing in case the biggest surprise is not the most interesting thing. Yeah. I, I think um, the biggest surprise for me was the degree to which certain writers and thinkers really seemed to um, to weigh heavily on his own mind when he was working on, particularly Sutrian and Blood Meridian. Flaubert was one that I, I just kept seeing references to the temptation in his uh, in his papers. The other um, Oswald Spengler, the uh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the historian. Who uh, decline and decline of the West? Yeah, Spingler's has this theory uh, that human um, civilizations are, or you know, like any organic being, they uh, they have an, an inception, a, a youth, a childhood, an adolescence, an adulthood, and a, a period of decline, senility, and eventually death. So um, you know, the, there's a rise, and then there's a decadent, um, you know slide into oblivion and um the the book the idea is that the west is entering into its decadent mm -hmm. phase you know that it's entering into its period of decline and that historical pessimism i think deeply informs uh, mccarthy's own sense of you know history um and of the the trajectory of western civilization you know and so you know blood meridian that evening <laughs> Uh, redness in the West. That's that's really he's he's alluding to Spengler there, really. Right. And that book is is um, is is full of that melancholy sense that, as is Sutri, I think also that melancholy sense that you know this this civilization is in its decadent phase. Um, that the the sundown is hmm. is uh, is coming soon. You know, and of course uh, it, that that plays out even further into the road sure. where, where we see the, you know, the collapse. 
Right. It doesn't take it. Even if society doesn't collapse under the weight of its own strain, it sure doesn't have a lot of tolerance for the disaster, whatever causes it. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't show a lot of fortitude and not resisting. a lot of fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the descent into, um, you know, a kind of feral state. Right. Pure barbarism. Yeah. It's very rapid. <laughs> yeah. So based on then your studies in the archives, what areas do you think have been unexplored by scholars either through whether they should go make the pilgrimage to the Whitliff? And I have to say, I'm envious of your time in Texas. I am, myself have not been there yet. And I definitely plan to, I, I wouldn't say it's on the bucket list partly because I hate that term, yeah. uh, but it's definitely on the list and it's definitely something I want to do, but I've not been there yet. And I think part of it is I'm, not much of a textual yeah, yeah. scholar. I'm, I'm much more based on, I guess, the final product when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. So what are what are things you think where scholars should, I don't know, put, point their interest? Where should they focus? Well, I, th- I think uh, I, I do really like the textual s- scholarship and archival research. And, you know, one reason that I, I liked doing it beyond just my own personal interest is that the, the product is something that um, that becomes perennially useful for uh, for other scholars, right? And you know, I think that uh, when I wrote this book, I, it, it occurred to me that there's a hundred springboards here for future scholarship for other scholars, and I, I've seen some some people who have uh, you know have used the book as a springboard and tried to pursue some of the you know some of the roads that I open up here. Uh, in further detail. So, um, you know, I think that there's all kinds of work that can be done with McCarthy's papers. You know, I think Diane Luce is doing some great stuff uh, using the archives. And, uh, you know, I think just looking at the drafting process, I think there's a lot more for scholars to do in looking at the way McCarthy's novels take shape over time. I think there's still, you know, lots of opportunities to, um, you know, to really explore his notes. When I was looking at his notes, I had a very um, narrow, very specific uh, subject that I, sure. that I I was looking for. But there's, there's so many things in there that, you know, an, an intrepid investigator could, uh, yeah. could, <laughs> could uh, explore in greater detail. So, you know, there's those things, um, you know, there is, there is some, um, you know, there's the, Woolmer correspondence it, at San Marcos. There's uh, letters uh, between McCarthy and uh, a friend of his. And I don't know, there's maybe about a hundred letters in there spanning a couple of decades. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, there, there are also letters. Um, the author of Goodbye to a River, whose name evades me right now. You know, there's correspondence with him. And, uh, you know, so the, looking at letters, maybe even editing some sort of a collection of McCarthy correspondence. There's more and more of McCarthy's correspondence that I think surfaces and ends up in special collections. Mm. You know, I think there might be some stuff at the University of Tennessee. Where's Robert Cole's stuff? Robert Cole. Uh, See at North Carolina? I, I forget, but there is correspondence. Brian Ginza has, has, uh, has written about McCarthy's relationship to Robert Cole's. So uh, I forget where his, his stuff is housed. You know, that would be fruitful as well. And you mentioned Walker Percy. And, of course, Percy and Coles were, were good friends. It'd be interesting to know if there was, you know, through that common 
friendship, that shared friendship with Robert Coles, if there was ever any sort of connection between Percy and McCarthy. Yeah, I would be fascinated in that. I, I definitely believe there are many references throughout Sutry to McCarthy or to Percy's first couple of novels mm-hmm. for sure, which would have been the two that were very popular when McCarthy really started writing. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about books are made out of books, we're showing our particular cultural bias. And by this, I don't mean Western culture or American culture. I really mean English professor culture and reader culture. But if we were to do a typical survey of, let's say, 300 random people from where I live now and from where you live now and 10 other spots in the United States, what we'd find is not many people read literary books, not many people read seriously, or even read significant nonfiction. So they're reading political biographies and sports biographies. They're reading self-published young adult goth vampire teen prom novels. They're reading and they're watching Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime television shows. So have you seen elements? And even McCarthy, we know, is not immune to pop culture. He, mm-hmm. a, a number of people have thought of how the, the film, for instance, uh, The Wild Bunch and Sam Peckinpah have perhaps yeah. Yeah. influenced him. And McCarthy tells someone in an interview, and I think it, I don't think it's Peter Joseph, but maybe Joseph writes about it, one of his books. I, I enjoyed The Wild Bunch, but I'm not particularly influenced by it, yeah. he says. And that, that might be a whole different conversation. But did you find any evidence in the archives for things outside of written culture, uh, references to films or television shows or pop songs or anything country? I know he used to play kind of folk country music. Yeah, country music for sure in the, the Sutri papers. Um, and some of... Some of the notes he um, he reproduces the lyrics to bluegrass song. Hmm. So there are those references to country music, but you know, and I think McCarthy in interviews has acknowledged um, an, an interest in in country music or hillbilly music. Right, as it was called before it was called bluegrass. So you know, there's that, um, and I think um, he was definitely interested in film. Right, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about the archives as you you discover McCarthy made a serious go at at becoming a screenwriter <laughs> right you know there's um cities of the plane yeah started out as a screenplay um and no country for old men started out as a screenplay and there um you know there's a screenplay called whales and men right generally disparaged <laughs> by <laughs> those who have read it um but it was a big deal to him that that whales and men screenplay because there are three drafts of it and you know, they're the, the marginalia, the scribblings, the, you know, it's this, he wrote all over those drafts. I mean, he, and there were, there were scenes in that screenplay that he wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. So uh, however much uh, those who have read it may, uh, may dislike it. McCarthy was deeply invested in that screenplay. Right. For some time. Well, you know, there's kind of two ways that writers can make money from Hollywood, and we could call it the Faulkner way and the Hemingway way. Faulkner's way was to keep staying very true to his his idea of how complicated and, you know, stay true to his muse where his prose is concerned. But on the other hand, 
fly out to Hollywood and work there enough to pay the bills back home, right. which were getting greater and greater for Faulkner as more and more relatives came to depend on him. And he had, you know, was working to rebuild his house and yeah. make everything look nice. And then there's a the Hemingway way, which is to have Hollywood constantly adapt yeah. to work. And, and I think for McCarthy, it didn't really work so well following the Faulkner fashion where he tried to break in with his own screenplays that way. And I think part of it is with notable exception of Gardner's son, of course, yeah. is he has difficulty not being Cormac McCarthy when he writes his screenplays. Yeah. Whereas when he finally got his works became more popular. And so thus were more prone to be adapted in the film. Suddenly everything changed and it, it doesn't hurt that the Coen brothers who he and I share as our, one of our favorite movies, their second film, Miller's Crossing, which is a wonderful yeah. reprision of a couple of Dashiell Hammett novels. Uh, you know, Red Harvest and The Glass Key. And he's lucky that they're the ones who did No Country for Old Men because you can certainly see many other f- filmmakers get everything wrong yeah. it, when they film that and make too many changes, whereas those guys had a great allegiance to the soul of that novel and really did a mar- marvelous job with it. Yeah, they did. That, that is by far the most successful a- adaptation. Everybody agrees with that. Um, yeah, it's true. Um, you know, he... He really didn't pull it off, but there was a serious investment in, in trying to master. Well, and then, of course, there's the the one that Ridley Scott produced and directed, uh, The Counselor, which I think m- many readers have a mixed view of. <laughs> I certainly, my view is not very mixed, I have to admit. It's, it's probably the one work of his, including Wells of Men, that I have the, the least pleasure from reading. There are little moments that are gold in it, but overall, it doesn't. I don't think it's very successful. The the movie I think is is awful. The screenplay, which is longer than the the film screenplay, has moments that are it's interesting. If if you're obsessed with Cormac McCarthy, yes, yes, give you some little interesting insights into his thinking. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty clearly a, a failure, an artistic failure. Don't don't quit the day job. Is what <laughs> the, what I, I thought when I read it. Or hold out for a director whose view and yours tie together a little further, and it can be a true collaboration. Yeah. So any ideas based on your research or based on your interest for your next project? Are you working on anything now? Not working on anything at the moment. Um, you know, I have a few ideas, and you know, some of them relate to just kind of teasing out some of the things that I, that I started working on in the right. book. Books are made out of books. Um, you know, the... The Flaubert, you know, Flaubert, Spingler, um, Foucault, there are several writers that um, seem to have, you know, they seem to form uh, a little network Hmm. of uh, influences on McCarthy during that period in the late 70s when he was working on both the Western and Sutri. Be interesting to try to explore those in greater depth, particularly the that historical pessimism of Spengler, which McCarthy, you know, clearly uh, shares. And so, um, but I, I'm a little daunted, honestly, by, by going to any greater depth into Spengler. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have to work up the gumption to do that. And I don't know that, I, that I'm there yet. So um, I have a lot of ideas kicking around. Um, we'll see where, where they go.
now is one of the favorite parts of the podcast, which is where I always ask people, and I think you've already given us a spoiler on this, but that's okay. What's your favorite work by McCarthy and why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sutri is my favorite um, by McCarthy. I think, you know, I think the general consensus is that Blood Meridian is his masterpiece. And I can see that because it is more, I think, coherent and polished. Um, it's, um, it works as a whole, <laughs> right? Uh, as, a, as a kind of fully realized artistic vision, perhaps better than Sutri does. Sutri is a very heter heterogeneous book and uh, episodic, and it's probably a little messy in places. And you can, if there's an interesting letter um, written to McCarthy um, from Albert Erskine, his editor at the time, practically begging him to make um, cuts in the book, to streamline it, um, to mm -hmm. rein it in. So, uh, you know, I think it's in some ways not as not as polished as Blood Meridian. I think it's maybe not as polished even as um, The Orchard Keeper, you know, or Child of God. But it's just, it's, I, I, I love it because, uh, for one thing, it's his funniest book. For sure. I, I, I actually wish that McCarthy would let his comic side... <laughs> come to the fore um, more than he does. I mean, particularly, I, you know, the, all the pretty horses has, has some, some great comic moments in it. Sure. But things get pretty heavy after that. You know, the crossing is, um, you know, you don't, you don't go to the crossing when you want some laughs. No. And so I, I like that it's leavened by comedy um, and uh, brilliant comedy. Yes. So um, that's, that's part of the reason that I love it so much, but I love uh, the, just the, the dialogue, the crispness of the of the dialogue, you know, you can hear those voices so clearly. And I think one of the other things that I really like about it personally is I, I find it to be far less pessimistic and gloomy mm. than than probably most of McCarthy's work. And I, you know, I almost read it as a, a story to the degree that there's any kind of a story arc. I see it as a, a comic as a, sure. as a comedy, you know, the, the story arc of comedy rather than tragedy, you know, and I see it as a the story of, of a man who um, is, is disenchanted with the, the world around him in part because the world around him is so disenchanted, I think. Sure. And uh, he's alienated from it, but that alienation is, um, is I think in Sutri born out of a spiritual yearning for peace, for, you know, for wholeness and for redemption. So to me, it's the story arc is, is one of, of salvation. And, and you're watching a, a man stumble and fall and pick back up and stumble and fall and get back up. Um, but you can also trace um, a, a trajectory, a movement towards something like spiritual rebirth. And at the end of the, the novel, uh, you have uh, Sutri leaving, leaving McAnally Flats mm. in, a, in a very real sense, rejecting. Um, he's, he's not only now rejected his, you know, his father's world, but I think he's also rejecting this, this world that he has inhabited uh, at the, at the margins of things. And uh, you have this wonderful moment, you know, where um, there's a, a dead body back in the houseboat <laughs> and the, the water bearer, you know, bringing the water, the car stopping without being hailed. You know, there's just this sense that there's, uh, 
you know, you, you have uh, Satri leaving behind, um, you know, his, they, he, he carries his, his only talisman is the human heart within him, you know, and, um, you know, there's this just sense that there's been a, a kind of rebirth, a kind of spiritual transformation. Uh, it, it may be that my own biases, you know, lead me to read it that way, but I can't help but read it that way. And that's very much how I read it as well. I think he's he's haunted by death yep. the entire novel, and his twin dies, is stillborn, and is his dark double who of yeah. his dead dark double throughout the novel. But at the end, he chooses to to live and to participate in life rather than just coast along. and And I think there's yeah. so much to be said about that as we go. And I I do think it, I agree with you. It is a remarkable achievement and one of the ones that really landed me in thoroughly in his camp as well. Yeah. Well, thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Michael Cruz. Michael Cruz is associate professor of English and chair of English and communication studies at Regents University. His book, Books Are Made Out of Books, A Guide to Corbin McCarthy's Literary Influences, was published by University of Texas Press in 2017 and is well worth the trouble for any reader seriously invested in Corbin McCarthy. Thanks also to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced music for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Corbin McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you are agreeable, it will help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. We are social and thus may be sought out on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thank you.